Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Today's story is titled 1001's Famous Folk Heroes and Legends, Part 1. And I can already tell from the research I've been doing for this episode that this is going to be a really fun one to do because it covers every corner of the world and picks up three categories on our show, those being heroes, legends, and histories. And we'll no doubt add a few mythological mysteries along the way. What is a folk hero, you ask? I think we all have different answers. As a folk hero can be a real hero, a fictional hero, or a mythological hero. And one thing they have in common is that their name, their personality, and their deeds have become embedded in the consciousness of a people or culture. And they're often thought of and mentioned reverently in folk songs, stories, and tales sometimes tall tales that seem to grow with time. We'll start today with a mythological hero, a little guy with a curved back wearing a few feathers on his head and playing a flute. Someone, we know not who, scratched his image on the side of a rock a few thousand years ago, and since then he's appeared on everything from shirts to pottery to golf balls. His name is Cocapelli, and he's a legend. But folk legends aren't always good guys or heroes. One case in point today being the story of Australia's folk hero Ned Kelly, who committed all kinds of crimes, but ended up being accepted, if not idolized, by the people who believed that he was standing up against what was considered at that time a brutal authority. Brutal to the down and out. And sometimes men who had been badly wronged took vengeance out upon their transgressors, and became legends that way, as witnessed in today's stories of Gutapia, a living legend who took vengeance upon an entire nation for the wrongs they did to he and his family, and an American Southerner named Buford Pusser, a sheriff who refused to back down from the crooked Dixie Mafia who had his county and half a state in their pocket, and waged a one-man war on them after they murdered his wife in a drive-by shooting. Then there are the old legends of mythical giants like Finn McCool of Ireland, whose footsteps created lakes and whose wild tales entertained children and adults for centuries, along with the tales of Paul Bunyan and his blue ox babe in the north woods of America. And we have many more folk legends of different kinds coming in future episodes here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We'll begin with our first stop, in the American Southwest. Even if you've never visited the American Southwest, you've probably seen the image of Cocapelli. You know, the little humpbacked guy playing a flute and kind of dancing around. The life of every party. Cocapelli is one of the most intriguing and widespread images surviving from ancient Anasazi Indian mythology, and he is a prominent figure in Hopi legends. Cocapelli is most typically viewed as a fertility deity, and he's still worshipped by many Native American tribes in the Southwest. He is also thought to be a trickster, a traveling salesman, a musician, a warrior, and a hunting magician. In addition to being a minstrel, Cocapelli is considered a symbol of fertility who brought well-being to the people, assuring success in having lots of babies and plentiful crops. His likeness varies almost as much as his legends. He is usually shown as a humpbacked flute player with feathers or, as one person described it, antenna-like protrusions on his head, depending upon your point of view. I think they're feathers, 
Some images show knobby knees and club feet. Different artists, different cocapellis. Indian legends apparently portray him to be a fertility god, so a young family would be sure to have a few cocapellis hanging around the living space. It is thought by some of those same researchers that Cocapelli's humpback may have evolved from a sack that was slung over his shoulders. The contents of his sack vary as much as the legends. I just think that if you're dancing around playing a flute all the time, that's the position you would be in, and the original artist had it right. But getting back to that sack, researchers say that sack may have contained goods for trade. This is based upon the beliefs that Cocapelli represented early Aztec traders, known as Pachicas from Mesoamerica. These salesmen would travel from the cities of Maya and Aztec with their goods in sacks slung across their backs. They also used their flutes to announce themselves as they approached the settlement, or so the theory goes. According to a Hopi myth, Cocapelli's sack contained babies to be left with young women. At San Idelfonso, a Pueblo village, Cocapelli is thought to be a wandering minstrel with a sack of songs on his back who trades old songs for new. According to Navajo legend, Cocapelli is a god of harvest and plenty. It is thought that his sack was made of clouds full of rainbows or seeds. One thing Cocapelli definitely is, is a symbol known and liked everywhere. Ever heard of Friesland or Frisians or Pier Golof's Donia? If you're from the Netherlands, you definitely have. The Frisians are a Germanic ethnic group indigenous to the coastal parts of Netherlands and northwestern Germany. They inhabit an area known as Frisia, and they're concentrated in the Dutch provinces of Friesland and Groningen, and in Germany, East Frisia and North Frisia, which was a part of Denmark until 1864. Pia Gorlas Dona, known by his nickname Gute Pia. Gute Pia. Spelled G-R-U-T-T-E. P-I-E-R, was a man of extraordinary strength and size. His real name was Pia Gorlofs Donia, and he was born in 1480 in Kimsward, near the city of Harlingen, Vanseradeel, which is now in modern Friesland, Netherlands. He was a unique individual who grew up working on a farm, but at age 35, when his village was plundered by mercenaries on January 29, 1515, and his wife killed in a most brutal fashion, he sought revenge on those who cost him all that pain and sorrow. To some, Gutapia was just a brutal rebel and pirate, but many then regarded him as a legendary freedom fighter. It all depended on whose side you took. The mercenaries that attacked his farm and family were called the Black Band Langsnecks, and wherever they went, death and destruction followed. The arrival of these German mercenaries in any village made people tremble with fear. In fact, during the 16th century, the Black Band Langsnecks were the most feared soldiers on Europeans' battlefields. They were paid killers hired by the Austrian House of Habsburg to spread terror throughout the borderlands. Just like the Viking Varangian Guard, they were military warriors hired to take part in an armed conflict, except their victims weren't always armed. In Gutapia's village, the Black Band Langsnecks burned the church and Donia's estate, they murdered and plundered. Rinsa Sertsima, wife of Gutapia, was attacked and murdered. Seeking revenge, Gutapia allied himself with Charles of Egmond, Duke of Gelders, and started a guerrilla war campaign against the House of Habsburg, 
also called the House of Austria. Gutapia blamed the Habsburg authorities for the events because they had employed the murderous regiment as mercenaries. Gutapia received financial support from Charles II, and his military campaign was very successful. His band, known as the Arumer Zwarte Hoop, consisted of peasant rebels who became dangerous pirates. Using guerrilla tactics, Pia's pirates managed to capture dozens of English and Dutch ships. Pia didn't limit his killing to the Habsburg authorities. He wanted to kill everyone in their domain. In the city of Medemblik, the Arumer Zwarte Hoop also managed to siege two important castles. This was a great military achievement at the time, but at the cost of many victims. Gutapia and the Arumur Zwarte Hoop plundered Medemblik, killed many inhabitants, and took some as prisoners. This began to turn those who had supported him against him. When Pia and his army stormed Newburg and Middleburg Castle near Alkmaar, they later plundered and set them on fire, leaving only ruins behind. Now he and the Arumur Zwarte Hoop were controlling a large strategic military area. In 1517, the Arumers Warte Hoop captured the town of Asburin, where they killed almost all the inhabitants, men, women, and children. By 1520, Gutapia died, leaving his command of 4,000 now pirates and peasant warriors to the command of his lieutenant, S. Jelkema, who also achieved minor victories, but proved to be a less competent commander and slowly lost favor with his men. Jelkoma and his soldiers indulged in acts of piracy and sacked many villages in the Frisian lands, losing the trust and support totally of their own people. The fact that Jelkoma was less charismatic also cost him. He forged less fruitful alliances and lost more than he made. After a series of defeats, Jelkoma and the remaining Frisian and Geldarian rebels were caught and decapitated, putting the rebellion to an end. At the end, the Habsburgs were too strong and couldn't be defeated. But Gutapia, the one-man vigilante, still lives on as a legendary but tarnished hero of the Northlands. In America, we have a similar folk hero, a real person who, after losing everything he had to a crooked system, decided to take on the bad guys himself with nothing but a baseball bat and a truckload of courage. His name was Buford Pusser. When his wife was killed, Buford Pusser went from a cop hell-bent on fighting crimes to a man hell-bent on avenging his wife's death. Just before dawn on August 12, 1967, McNary County Sheriff Buford Pusser got a call about a disturbance on a side road just outside of town. Though it was early, his wife Pauline decided to accompany him to investigate. As they drove through the small Tennessee town toward the site of the disturbance, a car pulled up alongside them. Suddenly, the occupants opened fire on the Pusser's car, killing Pauline and wounding Pusser badly. Struck by two rounds on the left side of his jaw, Pusser was left for dead. It took him 18 days and several surgeries to recover, but he finally pulled through, driven by an overwhelming desire to even the score for his wife. As he returned home with his mangled jaw and no wife, he had only one thing on his mind, revenge. Buford Pusser vowed then that before he died, he would bring everyone who killed his wife to justice if it was the last thing he did. Before he became a revenge-driven widower, Buford Pusser was quite a respectable man. He'd been born and raised in McNary County, Tennessee, 
playing basketball and football in high school. Two things he excelled at due to his six-foot-six-inch height and his athletic ability. After high school, he joined the Marine Corps, though was eventually medically discharged due to his asthma. Then he moved to Chicago and became a local wrestler. His size and his strength earned him the nickname Buford the Bull, and his success earned him local fame. While in Chicago, Pusser made his future wife, Pauline. In December of 1959, the two married, and two years later moved back to Pusser's childhood home in Tennessee. Though he was just 25 at the time, he was elected chief of police and constable, a position in which he served for two years. In 1964, he was elected sheriff after the former position holder was killed in a car accident. At the time, he was just 27, making him the youngest sheriff in Tennessee's history. As soon as he was elected, Buford Pusser threw himself into his work. He first turned his attention to the Dixie Mafia and the State Line Mob, two gangs that operated on the line between Tennessee and Mississippi and made thousands of dollars off of the illegal sale of moonshine. Over the course of the next three years, Pusser survived several assassination attempts. Mob bosses from the entire tri-state area were set on taking him out, as his efforts to rid the town of illegal activity had proven quite successful. By 1967, he'd been shot three times, killed several hitmen who tried to kill him, and was considered a local hero. Then, disaster struck when Pauline was killed. Many assumed that the hit was an assassination attempt aimed at Buford Pusser, and that his wife had been an unintended casualty. The guilt that Pusser felt over his wife's death was insurmountable and drove him to cold-blooded revenge. Not long after the shooting, he named his four assassins, as well as Kirksky McCord Nix Jr., leader of the Dixie Mafia, as the one who orchestrated the ambush. Nix was never brought to justice, but Pusser ensured others would be and cracked down harder than ever on the illicit activity in that area. One of the hitmen, Carl Towhead White, ended up being gunned down by a hitman several years later. Many people believe Pusser himself did it, or had hired the assassin to kill him, though the rumors were never confirmed. Several years after that, two of the other four killers were found shot to death in Texas. Again, rumors swirled that Pusser had killed both of them, though he was never convicted. Nix later found himself in prison for a separate murder and was eventually sentenced to isolation for the rest of his life. Though Pusser would have considered Nix's isolation just as served, he never got to see it happen. In 1974, Pusser was killed in a car accident. On the way home from a local county fair, he hit an embankment and was killed after being ejected from the car. Both Buford Pusser's daughter and mother believed that he had been murdered, as Nix had been able to order several unrelated hits from prison. However, the claims were never investigated. It seemed that Pusser's long fight for justice was finally over. Today, a memorial stands in McNary County in the house in which Buford Pusser grew up. Several movies, called Walking Tall, were made about his life that depict the man who cleaned up a town, got caught in the middle of an assassination attempt, and spent the rest of his life hell-bent on vengeance for those who had hurt his family. Buford was a man who stood up for law and order, and what he believed was right and would never back down. He became an American legend. To keep things moving, we're switching over to mythical legends, 
and so we'll travel to Ireland first to meet a giant of a legend who is Ireland's Finn McCool. He gets toasted daily at a local tavern we have here in Virginia Beach called Finn McCool's. Finn McCool, by all reports, was a giant. Many geographical features in Ireland are attributed to Finn. Legend has it he built the giant's causeway as stepping stones to Scotland so as not to get his feet wet. He also once scooped up part of Ireland to fling it at a rival, but it missed and landed in the Irish Sea, and that clump became the Isle of Man, and the pebble became Rockall, the void became Loughnig. The Giant's Causeway is one of the top tourist destinations in Ireland today. In Ayrshire, Scotland, a common myth is that Elsa Craig, a small islet just off the coast of that county, is another rock which was thrown at the fleeing Ben and Donner, one of Finn's rivals, that islet being referred to as Paddy's Milestone in Ayrshire. Fingal's Cave in Scotland is also named after him, and shares the feature of hexagonal basalt columns with the nearby Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland. In both Irish and Manx popular folklore, Fionn Mac Cunwall is portrayed as a magical, benevolent giant. And I'll get to the fascinating story of what Manx is in a few minutes. You, you might already know, being very educated 1001 listeners, but I didn't. The most famous story attached to these versions of Finn tells of how one day, while making a pathway in the sea towards Scotland, the giant's causeway, Finn, called Fionn in this story, is told that the giant Ben and Donner is coming to fight him. Knowing he cannot withstand the colossal size and fighting power of Ben and Donner, Fionn asks his wife Una to help him. She dresses her husband as a baby, and he hides in a giant cradle. Then she makes a batch of griddle cakes, hiding griddle irons in a few of them. When Ben and Donner arrives, Una tells him Fionn is out, but he'll be back shortly. As Ben and Donner waits, he tries to intimidate Una with his immense power, breaking rocks with his little finger. Una then offers Ben and Donner a griddle cake. But when he bites into the iron, he chips his teeth. Una scolds him for being weak, saying her husband eats such cakes easily. And then she feeds one, without an iron, to the baby, who eats it without trouble. And here's where the Irish and Manx stories part. In the Irish version, Ben and Donner is so awed by the power of the baby's teeth and the size of the baby that, at Una's prompting, he puts his fingers in Fionn's mouth to feel how sharp his teeth are. As you can expect, Fionn bites off Ben and Donner's little finger, and scared of the prospect of meeting his father, considering the baby's size, Ben and Donner runs back towards Scotland across the causeway, smashing the causeway so Fionn couldn't follow him. The Manx Gaelic version contains a further tale of how Theon and his rival fought at Kirk Christ Rushen. One of Theon's feet carved out the channel between the Calf of Man and Kidderland. The other carved out the channel between Kidderland and the Isle of Man. And Ben and Donner's feet opened up Port Erin. Theon was injured, and in this story fled toward the sea where Ben and Donner couldn't follow, at which point the frustrated Ben and Donner tore out one of his own teeth and threw it, striking Fionn as he ran away. The tooth fell into the sea, becoming the Chicken Rock, and Finn cursed the tooth, which explains how Chicken Rock became a hazard to sailors. Here's the scoop on Manx. Maybe it is a cat breed, but it's much more. Manx was spoken as a first language by the Manx people on the Isle of Man until the death of the last native speaker 
Ned Madrell in 1974, the last of the Manxes. Kind of sad. Despite this, the language has never fallen completely out of use, with a minority of people still having some knowledge of it. In addition, Manx still has a role as an important part of the island's culture and heritage. Manx, and by the way, that's spelled M-A-N-X, has been the subject of language revival efforts with estimates in 2015 of around 1,800 people with varying levels of second language conversational ability. Since the late 20th century, Manx has become more visible on the island of Man with increased signage, radio broadcasts, and a bilingual primary school. The revival of Manx has been made easier because the language was well recorded. For example, the Bible has been translated into Manx, and audio recordings have been made of native speakers. And so, you cat lovers can be satisfied too, the Manx cat breed, you know, the cats without tails, did originate on the Isle of Man. They probably used to have tails until Finn McCool started stomping around as a baby, and it was definitely all over for them when he got old and took to a rocker. We just turned you into a Manx expert, so thank us at 1001 Heroes with a good review. We'd appreciate it. Those are just two of the stories connected to the legend of Finn McCool, which goes back further than written history, when all people had to share was stories. And of course, they just got bigger and better with time. Sort of like the legend of Paul Bunyan here in the U.S. This is a prime example of a tall tale. A tall tale is a story about a person who is larger than life. Long ago, before TV and social media made people dumber than bricks, people shared tall tales, and these were often knee-slappingly funny. Each group of workers here in the U.S. had their own tall tale hero. Paul Bunyan was a hero of North America's lumberjacks, the workers who cut down trees. Pecos Bill was a cowboy favorite. Paul Bunyan was known for his bigness, strength, speed, and skill. Tradition says he cleared forests from the northeastern United States to the Pacific Ocean. He even lumbered in Saudi Arabia for a while. At this point, you're supposed to ask me, how could he do that, since Saudi Arabia is all desert, has no trees? The answer is, well then, he must have done a pretty good job. Early in the 20th century, a writer prepared a collection of Paul Bunyan stories. They were included in a publication from the Red River Lumber Company in Minnesota. It's not known if the stories helped the company's sales, but they became extremely popular. Here's a typical story about this giant of a man. Many years ago, Paul Bunyan was born in the northeastern American state of Maine. His mother and father were shocked when they first saw the boy. Paul was so large at birth that five large storks, not just one, had to carry him to his parents. When the boy was only a few weeks old, he weighed more than 45 pounds. As a child, Paul was always hungry. His parents needed 10 cows just to supply milk for his meals. Before long, he ate 50 eggs and 10 containers of potatoes every day. He made Gaston from Beauty and the Beast look like a little piker. Young Paul grew so big that his parents did not know what to do with him. Once, Paul rolled over in his sleep and caused an earthquake. This angered people in the town where his parents lived. So the government, which was nosing around in people's affairs even back then, told his mother and father that they would have to move him somewhere else. 
Paul's father had stripped down a barn to build a wooden cradle for little Paul. His parents, wary of Paul's rocking the cradle and causing another quake, tried putting the cradle in the waters along the coast of Maine. But every time Paul rocked, huge waves covered all the coastal towns. So his parents brought their son back to land. They took him into the woods, and that's where he grew up. As a boy, Paul helped his father cut down trees. Paul had the strength of many men. He was also extremely fast. He was so fast that he could turn off a light and then jump into his bed before his room got dark. Maine, as many of you know, is very cold for much of the year. One day, it started to snow. The snow covered Paul's home and a nearby forest. However, this snow was very unusual. It was blue. The blue snow kept falling until the forest was covered. Paul put on his snowshoes and went out to see the unusual sight. As he walked, he discovered an animal stuck in the snow. It was a baby ox. Paul decided to take the ox home with him. He put the animal near the fireplace. After the ox got warmer, the ice and snow melted off, but his hair remained blue. Now the baby ox grew to be a big animal, but Paul was a big kid, so they kind of matched each other in size and temperament. He decided to keep the blue ox and name him Babe. Babe grew very quickly. One night, Paul left him in a small building with the other animals. The next morning, the barn was gone, and so was Babe. Paul searched everywhere for that animal. He finally found Babe calmly eating grass in a valley, with the barn still on top of him. Babe followed Paul everywhere and grew larger every day. Every time Paul looked, Babe seemed to grow taller. This is probably what inspired the children's stories, The Big Red Dog. In those days, like today, fortunately, because of land conservation, much of North America was filled with thick, green forests. Paul Bunyan could clear large, wooded areas with a single stroke of his large, sharp axe, like Pumbaa could clear the savannah after every meal. Except these were trees that were disappearing, not friends. Paul taught Babe to help with his work. Babe was very useful. For example, Paul had trouble removing trees along a road that was not straight. He decided to tie one end of the road to what remained of a tree in the ground. Paul tied the other end to Babe. Babe dug his feet in the ground and pulled with all his strength until the road became straight. In time, Paul and Babe, the blue ox, left Maine, probably so the timber could grow back, and moved west to look for work in other forests. Along the way, Paul dug out the Great Lakes to provide drinking water for Babe. They settled in a camp near the Onion River in the state of Minnesota. Paul's camp was the largest in the country. The camp was so large that a man had to have one week's supply of food when walking from one side of the camp to the other. Paul decided to get other lumberjacks to help with the work. His work crew became known as the Seven Axemen. Each man was more than eight feet tall and weighed more than 240 pounds. All of the axemen were named Elmer. That way, they all came running whenever Paul called them. He would just say, Yo, Elmer! The ground would shake, and there they were. The man who cooked for the group was named Sourdough Sam. He made everything, except coffee, eggs, and bacon, from sourdough, a substance used in making sourdough bread. Every Sunday, Paul and his crew ate hotcakes. Each hotcake was so large, it took five men just to eat one. Paul usually had ten or more hotcakes, depending on how hungry he was. The table where men ate 
was so long that the server usually drove to one end of the table and just had to stay the night. The server drove back in the morning with a fresh load of food every day. Paul needed someone to help with the camp's finances. He gave the job to a man named Johnny Inkslinger. Well, Johnny kept the records of everything, including wages and the cost of feeding Babe. He sometimes used nine containers of writing fluid a day to keep such detailed records. Big mosquitoes were a problem at camp. They were so big that on one bad day, four of them picked up Babe and flew 20 miles from camp before they finally got tired and dropped him. The men attacked the insects with their axes and long sticks. Before long, the men put barriers around their living space, but that didn't work either. Then, Paul ordered them to get big bees to destroy the mosquitoes. That did work, for a while, but soon the bees married the mosquitoes, had offspring, called bee-skeetos, and the problem just got worse. One day, the insects' love of sugar caused them to pounce on a ship that was bringing what they thought was sugar to the camp, but it turned out to be salt, and that did them in fast. They all died. Salt has the same effect on ants, just so you know. When winter came, Babe had trouble finding enough food to eat. Snow covered everything. Only the blacksmith solved the problem. He made huge green sunglasses for Babe. When Babe wore the sunglasses, he thought the snow was grass. Before long, Babe was strong and healthy again. Or so the legend goes. Paul Bunyan and Babe left their mark on many areas. Some people say they were responsible for creating Puget Sound in the western state of Washington. Others say Paul Bunyan and Babe cleared the trees from the states of North Dakota and South Dakota. They prepared that area for farming. Babe the Blue Ox died in South Dakota. One story says he ate too many hotcakes. Maybe he did, but that wasn't why he died. He just gave it up one day. Paul buried his old friend there. Today the burial place is known as the Black Hills. Paul headed for Alaska, and that's the last anyone ever heard of him. Because, you know, legends never die. Every culture has its heroes, and they don't all take the shape of humans. A culture hero is a mythological hero specific to some group who changes the world through invention or discovery, usually around the time of creation. In many Native American mythologies and beliefs, the coyote spirit stole fire from the gods, or stars, or sun, and is more of a trickster than a culture hero. Coyote Waits, a story in my collection by Tony Hillerman, talks about the old Navajo legends and superstitions, which any reservation police detectives need to know if they're going to understand the people and how they think. And you definitely need a big guidebook to understand Navajo customs. The Pacific Northwest native stories often feature a raven in this tricky spirit role. In some stories, raven steals fire from his uncle beaver and eventually gives it to humans. The Western African trickster spider Anansi is also widely disseminated. The Anansi stories that originated in Ghana and spread through West Africa and the Caribbean are numerous. If you know anyone from those areas, ask if they've got an Anansi story for you. Anansi is what they call an Akan folktale character. He often takes the shape of a spider and is considered to be the spirit of all knowledge of stories. I occasionally see spiders here in my office. And now, if they're the spirit of all knowledge of stories, I'll have to think twice before I blast one. Maybe I'll need to put a little food dish out for them. 
We need the spirit of storytelling to remain alive and well here if we're going to make it to 1001. And then on to 2001. And last but not least here in part one, we're going to take you to the land down under and cover a bad guy folk hero called Edward Ned Kelly. He was born in 1854 and best known as being an Australian bushranger, outlaw, gang leader, and convicted police murderer. But yet he survives today as a folk hero. One of the last bushrangers and by far the most famous, he was best known for wearing a suit of bulletproof armor during his final shootout with the police. I can hear the bullets pinging off that as I write this. Kelly was born in the British colony of Victoria as the third of eight children to Irish parents. His father, a transported convict, died shortly after serving a six-month prison sentence, leaving Kelly, then aged 12, as the eldest male of the household. The Kellys were a poor family who saw themselves as downtrodden by the squatocracy, which was a slang term for ex-convicts who were allowed to settle on usually barren land but not allowed to earn rights to it, and were often victims of police persecution. While a teenager, Kelly was arrested for associating with bushranger Harry Power and served two prison terms for a variety of offenses, the longest stretch being from 1871 to 1874, and he was convicted for receiving a stolen horse. Yes, terms were tough in Australia in those days. He later joined the Greta Mob, a group of bush larrikins known for stock theft. A violent confrontation with a policeman occurred at the Kelly's family home in 1878, and Kelly was indicted for attempted murder. He fled to the bush and vowed to avenge his brother Dan and two associates, Joe Byrne and Steve Hart, who had shot and killed three policemen, at which point the government of Victoria proclaimed them as outlaws. Kelly and his gang that he put together eluded the police for two whole years, thanks in part to the support of an extensive network of sympathizers, and that's where the term bad guy hero comes in. The gang's crime spree included raids on Euroa and Gerald Derry, and the killing of Aaron Sherritt, a sympathizer turned police informer. In a manifesto letter, Kelly, denouncing the police, the Victorian government, and the British Empire, set down his own account of the events leading up to his outlawry. Demanding justice for his family and the rural poor, he threatened dire consequences against those who defied him. In 1880, when Kelly's gang was waiting to ambush a police train that didn't arrive until the next day, he held a group of locals at the Glen Rowan Hotel, where they danced and drank with no fear of harm from Kelly. The next morning, he and his gang, dressed in armor fashioned from stolen plow moldboards, engaged in a final gun battle with the police at Glen Rowan. And this is an account of what transpired. By Sunday afternoon, the gang had gathered a total of 62 hostages at the hotel. As the hours passed without any sight of the train, the gang insisted that drinks be provided to the townspeople and that music be played. They danced with hostages while the landlady's son sang Bush Ranger ballads, including one about the Kelly gang. Dan and Byrne became fairly drunk. Ned, however, abstained from drinking and instead staged hop, step, and jump and other games with the hostages who were also encouraged by the bushrangers to amuse themselves with card games. One hostage later testified, Ned did not treat us badly, not at all. At about 10 p.m., Ned and Byrne captured Glen Rowan's lone constable Bracken with the assistance of hostage Thomas Curnow, 
a local schoolmaster who sought to gain the gang's trust in order to thwart their plans. Believing that Colonel was a sympathizer, Ned let him and his wife return home, but warned them to go quietly to bed and not to dream too loud, as one of the gang would visit during the night. Back at the hotel, Kelly grew increasingly anxious over the train's non-arrival. The delay was caused by the fact that the policeman in Sherritt's hut waited until daylight to emerge and give the alarm, and news of the murder did not reach Melbourne until Sunday afternoon. Only at 1 a.m. on Monday did a police train carrying troopers, native trackers, and several journalists steam into Benalla to collect reinforcements. Upon hearing the train's approach at 3 a.m., Kurnow, despite Kelly's warning, rushed to the line and warned the pilot train to stop by raising a lit candle behind a red scarf. He told the driver of the gang's plan. The trains then slowly made their way to Glen Rowan. Around this time, Kelly decided to let the townspeople return home, but Ann Jones told them to stay to hear the outlaw lecture. Byrne interrupted the conversation, alerting the group about the train's arrival. The gang prepared for action and hurried to dress in their armor. Bracken, meanwhile, told the hostages to lie low and escape to the railway station to explain the situation to the police. Superintendent Hare led six constables and five native trackers towards the hotel, where the armor-clad outlaws waited for them on the veranda. At this point, the police started the gun volley. The police and the gang fired at each other for about a quarter of an hour. During a lull, Superintendent Hare returned to the railway station with a shattered left wrist from one of the first shots fired. He had bled profusely, and Tom Carrington, artist for the Australasian sketcher, used his handkerchief to compress the wound. Hare then ordered O'Connor and his men to surround the hotel, and later attempted to return to battle, but gradually lost so much blood that he had to be sent to Benalla for treatment. Kelly had been shot in the left elbow and right foot, and later left the hotel undetected. The police, trackers, and civilian volunteers surrounded the hotel throughout the night, and the firing continued intermittently. At about 5 a.m., nine reinforcements under Superintendent Sadler arrived from Benalla, followed soon after by Sergeant Steele of Wangaratta, with six more policemen, for a total of about 30 men. Around this stage, Byrne made a toast while drinking whiskey at the bar, saying, Many more years in the bush for the Kelly gang. But moments later, a stray bullet passed through a small gap in his armor and severed his femoral artery, and he bled out within minutes. Before daylight, Senior Constable Kelly found a revolving rifle and a silk cap lying in the bush about a hundred yards from the hotel. The rifle was covered with blood, and a pool of blood lay near it. They believed it to belong to one of the bush rangers, hinting that they had escaped. They proved to be those of Ned Kelly himself. At daybreak, the women and children among the hostages were allowed to depart. They were challenged as they approached the police line to ensure that the outlaws were not attempting to escape in disguise. In the dim light of dawn, Kelly, dressed in his armor and armed with three handguns, rose out of the bush and attacked the police from their rear. Several members of the scattered police line returned fire, but to no effect, as Kelly moved steadily through the morning mist towards the hotel, his armor repelling bullets. The size and shape of the armor made him appear inhuman to the police, and his apparent invulnerability led to a shared state of superstitious awe. Constable Arthur, the first policeman to encounter Kelly, recalled, I was completely astonished 
and could not understand what the object I was firing at was. One trooper exclaimed that it was a bunyip and could not be killed. A civilian volunteer cried out that it was the devil. Journalist Tom Carrington wrote, With the steam rising from the ground, it looked for all the world like the ghost of Hamlet's father with no head, only a very long, thick neck. It was the most extraordinary sight I ever saw or read of in my life, and I felt fairly spellbound with wonder, and I could not stir or speak. Kelly laughed as he shot at and taunted the police and called out to the remaining outlaws to recommence firing, which they did. This strange contest continued for almost ten minutes. Kelly, weakened by blood loss, managed to advance fifty or so yards, at times stopping to change weapons or regain his composure after taking a bullet to the armor, the sensation being like blows from a man's fist. After diving to the ground to avoid one of Kelly's shots, Sergeant Steele realized that the figure's legs were unprotected. He shot at them twice with his shotgun, tearing apart Kelly's hip and thigh. The outlaw staggered, then collapsed against a fallen tree and moaned, I'm done. I'm done. Steele went to disarm him, but Kelly fired once more, blowing the sergeant's hat off and burning the side of his face. Several others assisted Steele in removing the armor and expressed shock upon discovering that it was Kelly. He became quiet, shot in the left foot, left leg, right hand, left arm, and twice in the region of the groin, although no bullet had penetrated his armor. He was carried to the railway station, placed in a guard's van, and then taken to the station master's office, where a doctor dressed his wounds. In the meantime, the siege continued. The female hostages confirmed that Dan and Hart were still alive in the hotel. They kept shooting from the rear of the building during the morning. At 10 a.m., a white flag or handkerchief was held out the front door, and immediately afterwards, and about 30 male hostages emerged, while Dan and Hart defended the back door. The police ordered the hostages to lie down, and they were checked one by one. Two of the hostages were arrested for being known Kelly sympathizers. By afternoon, Dan and Hart had seized the shooting. Unwilling to allow his men to storm the hotel, Superintendent Sadler telegraphed to Melbourne for an artillery cannon to be sent up by special train to obliterate the outlaws. A 12-pounder Armstrong gun made it as far as Seymour when Sadler decided to set fire to the hotel instead and received permission from the chief secretary, Robert Ramsey. Under cover of fire, Senior Constable Charles Johnson of Violettown placed a bundle of burning straw at the hotel's west side. Kate Kelly, Ned and Dan's sister, appeared on the scene around this time. She endeavored to make way to her brothers, but the police ordered her to stop. A light westerly wind carried the flames into the hotel and it rapidly caught a light. Matthew Gibney, a priest from Western Australia, entered the burning structure in an attempt to rescue anyone inside. He discovered the bodies of Dan and Hart, who he surmised had committed suicide. Whether they died in a suicide pact or by other means still remains a mystery. Caught hours earlier in police crossfire, hostage Martin Cherry, an old plate layer of the district, was found dying from a groin wound and promptly taken outside where Gibney gave him his last sacrament. Cherry succumbed within half an hour. Another hostage, quarryman George Metcalf, was shot in the face and died from the wound several months later. While he claimed it was an injury from police fire, 
More recent research indicates that Ned accidentally shot him the day prior to the siege. During the siege, John Jones, the 13-year-old son of the hotel's landlady, was unintentionally shot in the hip by police crossfire, dying the following day at Wangaretta Hospital. His elder sister, Jane, died about two years later at the age of 17 from a lung infection. Her mother believed that her death was hastened by the head wound that she received from a stray bullet during the siege, bringing the civilian death toll to four. Another three civilians were wounded by police fire, Charles Rawlins, a volunteer with the police, Michael Reardon, son of the line repairer who tore up the tracks, and Bridget Reardon, Michael's baby sister. An aboriginal tracker also had a narrow escape with the bushranger's bullet grazing his forehead. All that remained standing at the hotel was the lamppost and the signboard. Burns' body was strung up in Benalla as a curiosity. His friends asked for the body, but the police instead secretly interred it at night in an unmarked grave in Benalla Cemetery. The charred remains of Dan and Hart were taken to Greta and buried by their families in unmarked graves in the local cemetery, 30 kilometers east of Benalla. Kelly survived to stand trial on 19th of October, 1880, in Melbourne, before Sir Redmond Barry, the judge who had earlier sentenced Kelly's mother to three years in prison for the attempted murder of Fitzpatrick. Mr. Smith and Mr. Chomley appeared for the Crown and Mr. Binden for the prisoner. The trial was adjourned to 28th of October when Kelly was presented on the charge of murder of Sergeant Kennedy, Constable Scanian, and Lonigan, the various bank robberies, the murder of Sherritt, resisting arrest at Glen Rowan, and with a long list of minor charges. He was convicted of the willful murder of Lonigan and sentenced to death by hanging. After handing down the sentence, Barry concluded with the customary words, May God have mercy on your soul. To which Kelly replied, I will go a little further than that and say I will see you there when I go. In the century after his death, Kelly became a cultural icon inspiring numerous works in the arts and is the subject of more biographies than any other Australian. Kelly continues to cause division in his homeland. Some celebrate him as Australia's equivalent of Robin Hood, while others regard him as a murderous villain undeserving of his folk hero status. Journalist Martin Flanagan wrote, What makes Ned a legend is not that everyone sees him the same, it's that everyone sees him, like a bushfire on the horizon casting its red glow into the night. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. There will be follow-ups to this one. It seems there's always something to learn, and history is always waiting for us to find it. I really love doing what I do, making these podcasts and sharing them with our listeners. I have said it before, that I'm just a one-man operation here, and I'm up against million-dollar corporations now with lots of resources who have their eyes on grabbing the lion's share of the podcast world. We offer these shows for free, and I pay all the expenses to distribute them and market certain episodes. I spend all my time, full-time, researching, writing, doing the audio, editing the audio, distributing the episodes to the market, and keeping up with Facebook and Twitter as best I can, plus trying to answer emails from fans. I do read my reviews, but can't really answer them until I read them at the end of my shows. Occasionally I'll get a pronunciation wrong, or I'll miss a cough, or someone will say I have an obscure fact wrong, but for the most part, my work is on the mark. It's creative, and it's interesting. That's what people are telling me. Plus, I tell it well. 
which is really important in this business. Especially with my two stories podcast, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road, where we do longer format stories. A lot of people try podcasting, almost 2,000 people per day, but most never get beyond 10 episodes. It's not as easy to make a good podcast as you might think. Meanwhile, I'm asking that you take a moment and visit our Patreon page. That's at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. For as little as $1 a month, you can help our show and get access to the best of 1001 episodes, and with a little more, access to Prime Cuts, which are done just for Patreon supporters. It costs less than a cup of blended coffee every month to help us out and keep us going. So please say thanks for all we do by being a Patreon supporter. I share a wealth of knowledge, stories, and opinion, along with love for what I do, and I hope that comes through to all of you. We'll leave a link in the show notes for you. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. We'll see you next week.